Welcome to How Musicians Make It. My name is Adam and I'm your host. Today we're talking about Spotify, we're talking about major labels, we're talking about how major labels still run the show. They still run the show. We keep going like, oh, major labels are dead. I do think there's a trend towards independent artists becoming bigger and more frequent. And they're staying independent more frequently. And I think that trend will continue and that could mean the demise of major labels in 100 years maybe. That's pretty pessimistic. Maybe it's maybe 50, maybe 40. But if, if artists continue to build their audiences on social media independently and then they're able to make as much money as they would with a label by themselves, self-managing or hiring an independent manager or something, I think that we're going to see more of that moving forward. Today, what I'm going to do is read you guys. This is something a little different than what I usually do. Is I'm going to read you guys a post from Reddit uh, by this guy who's worked with all these huge bands, Slayer. You know, let me let me see. I can actually find his. Actually, find his. What you call it? The real J J High. The real J High. He's a writer, producer, mixer. He's worked with Aerosol, Rihanna, Charlie XCX, Grimes, Smashing Pumpkins, Madonna, Stefan Stills, Slayer. He's out of L.A. and Chicago. So this is a dude who's like worked with huge bands and he knows the industry. And he wrote this really awesome post called Spotify Unwrapped. Not unlike how I titled my Spotify episode one year ago where I said... Spotify warped instead of Spotify wrapped. It definitely warps our psyche, doesn't it? Looking at all those numbers and looking at the numbers that other artists are doing and comparing yourself to those other artists. It's a tough, it's a trap. It's a trap. Before we get started and before I read you this amazing, amazing post about the music business and how record labels still run the show and why your hate towards Spotify is misdirected, I want to tell you a little bit about what's going on with me. Uh, I formed a relationship with a new sync licensing agency. Many of you have listened to the episodes I did with XJ Will, Josh Williams, and uh, and Graham Barton, uh, the author of of tracks that sync. These guys are both like sync licensing dudes, and I had them on the podcast. And I talked about like how do you get started, and I basically just did what they said to do. And the way it happened for me was I, I, this guy who works at this really well-known sync licensing agency, he also is in the same world as I am. And I'll, I'm not going to be super specific so that you don't go like search this person out and send them 9,000 emails. But we struck a deal. I uploaded my entire library to this sync licensing agency, which is a lot of music. It's from like five different bands, um, stuff that I mostly wrote or co-wrote and they're working on you know setting up a profile for me and all this stuff so it's pretty exciting to get that stuff done the way it happened really is like we run around in the same circle so this person has known my name for a long time I think and I've certainly known this person's name for a long time since I was in college since like 2006 and a buddy of mine became an artist for them recently, somebody that I've collaborated with, and he sent an email, and he was like, hey, uh, I should connect you guys. And I finally went, all right, this is it. This is the moment where I got to jump on it. (laughs) 
and I jumped on it. So that that's really a product of like me grinding it out for a long time and like having relationships where other people are doing cool things and they just loop me in. Um, but one of the things that XJ Will and Graham Barton both talked about was like how to reach out to sync licensing agencies, how to form these relationships. And I certainly implemented some of those strategies when I was emailing back and forth with this person. So go back and listen to those episodes. Those are great episodes. That's a fun development in my life. Um, tomorrow, well, actually this would be, I guess a week ago when this comes out, uh, I'm, I'm driving down to new Orleans uh, and I just love new Orleans. It's one of my favorite places in the world. I've been there a bunch of times. I've played there a bunch of times with different bands touring and I'm excited to drive down. I'm, I'm bringing my students down this time. And so I'm just going to get them, you know, some experience in the culture of New Orleans and New Orleans brass band music in particular. We're going to go see some brass bands. We're going to go to Preservation Hall, of course. But we're going to hang out on, you know, Frenchman Street and Bourbon Street. And, you know, we're going to go check out the Soul Rebels. And we're going to work with some local New Orleans musicians. So that's pretty exciting. I'm heading down to do that next week. Uh, I guess I don't need to talk about me anymore. I used to talk about me a lot more on here, and, I, and I'd like to do that a little bit more as we move forward. But let's get into the nitty-gritty, shall we? Spotify unwrapped, all right? Uh, Jay High, the real Jay High. And if you're not on the r slash music industry on Reddit, the subgroup on Reddit or the group on Reddit, r slash music industry. Honestly, like, I don't know if it's a subreddit or a Reddit or a, I don't really understand how Reddit works. I, I like, I like, I dabble in, in, in nerdism. You know what I mean? I'm functional in the nerd world, but I don't like spend a lot of my time on the internet in the way that maybe you'd stereotypically think of somebody who uses Reddit a lot, but this is a great resource. There's a lot of people on here giving a lot of valuable information and I was, you know, it's like you're you're inundated with music business gurus on the internet, on Instagram and on Twitter, and in 40 characters or in four seconds or whatever, however long you watch a reel, it's easy to convince someone that you know what you're talking about, but in this uh, longer format on Reddit where you can do these longer posts and really kind of show that you know what you're talking about, uh, I've found a lot more value uh, going here and looking for things. So, let's get started. Spotify unwrapped. All right. At this time of year with social media awash in both Spotify wrapped humble brags and renewed anger and frustration from underpaid artists toward the streaming giant, I felt I needed to set the record straight. I had already been posting these observations individually on people's profiles in response to a lot of this noise for weeks, months, and years. So much so that I decided to save time and just write it out once and for all and then just link to it every time I see someone blaming Spotify for their pro- poverty. All right, so we're already jumping in. We're jumping in deep. Here we go. The music business is dead. Love live the music business. I think he probably meant to say long live the music business, <laughs> perhaps. Love live the music business. Labels Napster and the Golden Calf is the subtitle of this next section. It was the year 1999. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interject because I remember the first time I saw Napster. My brother was on our computer in the upstairs. We had just a hallway computer, right? Like this back in the 90s, you had a hallway computer. You didn't, everybody didn't have their own computers or laptops or iPads. Or, there, there wasn't anything like that. So you had like a desktop computer 
in your hallway. And ours was Adele, I think. And my brother was downloading all these songs, like thousands of songs on Napster. And I was like, it's probably hundreds. I was like, man, what are you doing? How are you getting all this music? And we had, he had a mini disc player. So those of you that are a little older, you might be like, yeah, mini disc. It was like a way that you could make, you know, it's like post cassette tape where you can make mixtapes of, of stuff. And he was downloading all these songs. And I was like, how are you doing? My brother's younger than me. So he's just, just being a year younger. I don't know. Like, I don't know how he heard about it, but he was downloading all these songs for free on Napster. And I was like, what is happening? Cause up to this point, it's like you had to save money to buy an album. Uh, and that's real. Like that's the real, <laughs> that was the real experience of a young person in the 1990s. And just 20 years later, it's like, you can get all the music in the history of the world for free, basically, or for 10 bucks a month. All right, back in. It was the year 1999. The music business was in a tailspin thanks to a new technology on the internet called peer-based sharing, commonly referred to by the program popular at the time, Napster. Ironically, Napster is one of the highest-paying streaming companies now for artists. Napster. Where was I? Commonly referred to by the program popular at the time, Napster. Music piracy was at an all-time high as kids all over the world were sharing and downloading music illegally. And the piracy police were in full swing. Lawsuits were flying. Lars Ulrich from Metallica came out swinging and in the process cemented his reputation as a spoiled, greedy millionaire drummer from the last century. This only justified and fueled even more anger toward the major labels and their coddled legacy rock stars. Everybody knew this was not going well. There needed to be a new idea, a new solution that would be so simple and easy that illegal downloading wouldn't even be worth the effort anymore. Next headline, Meet the New Savior. Daniel Eck and the Giant Peach. You guys know James and the Giant Peach? Enter Swedish tech millionaire Daniel Ek. He'd already made his millions from selling off a successful internet advertising company, and now he was ready for his next big idea. A music streaming service where anyone with an internet connection could listen to any recorded song at any time. As much as they wanted all for a monthly fee, this revolutionized the music business model. Decoupling purchasing from physical recordings or downloadable files and replacing it with a never-ending monthly subscription fee. The only wrench in the works was that he couldn't pull it off without getting approval from the owners of the recordings, the record labels. He needed them to give him access to all their catalogs in order to offer their music on his new streaming platform. Think about how successful Netflix would have been if none of the movie companies allowed their movies to be available on the Netflix platform. All right, so basically what he's saying here is, Spotify doesn't work unless the record labels say, okay, cool, you can have our artist's music on your platform. So, collusion? What collusion? Is the next headline. The prospect of negotiating with every single record label separately for the rights to stream their catalog was daunting, if not impossible. How to get it done? The labels loved this idea of a streaming platform. They tried to do it themselves, but they're a physical product industry and nobody from the tech sector was in charge. They were so desperate for someone to save them from their spiraling piracy malaise and the horrible negative press from the Napster lawsuits that when Eck P. 
pitched them this idea, their eyes must have bulged. They must have seen a golden calf, a savior that would revolutionize and revitalize their entire industry. So the record labels were in a downward spiral because of Napster and illegal downloading. People weren't buying albums anymore, and this was a big problem. And they sued Napster, and the public conversation was, these spoiled artists don't need more of our money. Why are they suing Napster, right? That became the, and of course, like that's trickled down and now we're all pissed off that everybody downloads everything for free. <laughs> it's kind of amazing that the conversation has, has shifted so drastically. But they weren't content to just give Eck permission to use their catalogs. In fact, their greedy eyes saw much, much more. They realized that Eck's plan this is Eck, Daniel Eck, the CEO of Spotify, was dead in the water without their permission. So in essence, they had all the power. They could set the terms however they wanted, and Eck could either take it or leave it. The only way they could do this was in solidarity. No single label could cut a deal with Eck separate from the others, or that would undermine their absolute control. In business, if, if, if would-be competitors collude to set prices, it's called price-fixing. And it's illegal. But that's exactly what they did. Easy when it's just three players in a room deciding the rules of the game for everyone. Okay, so these three major labels just deciding, hey, let's work together. Let's make sure that Spotify doesn't get our artists for less than X, Y, and Z. On an aside, uh, for those who don't know, the quote-unquote major labels are now just three public billion-dollar conglomerates. Sony BMG, Universal Music Group, and Warner Music Group. They control about 70% of the entire recorded music business, with the other 30% representing thousands of small, independent labels. Not only did the majors fix the prices, but they fixed the revenue splits as well. Eck and Spotify became their unwitting mule, entering into a Faustian contract where Eck got what he wanted, but he would pay dearly for it, and the record labels got what they wanted, which was control over a huge new revenue stream with no additional expenses. The record labels would give Eck just enough percentage of the income to run their operations, around 30%, a tiny slice to the artists themselves, around 10%, and they would keep 60% for themselves, not including the money that they make by owning the publishing rights as well. And Spotify, and, and if you haven't listened to our previous episode, we talk all about publishing rights, on ASCAP, and Spotify had to set up and maintain servers all over the world to provide the service. The labels had no expense related to streaming whatsoever. Their cut was almost pure profit. 60% of whatever Daniel Eck does is ours. Thank you very much, said the labels. If that wasn't enough, the labels also demanded that they own big chunks of Spotify stock as well, which they all do. And then they benefit from promoting their own artists on a platform they own, paying themselves from their own advertising budget that is recouped from their artists' profits and control what ends up on the popular playlists. So they favor their own artists too. It's a front. Okay, so this is... Essentially saying, look, the major labels control what what artists and songs go on editorial playlists, which shouldn't be a huge surprise. Like, even it, without knowing that they own, they each own stock in Spotify, and, and without knowing that they're taking 
you know, 70 cents on every dollar from Spotify, 10, 10% goes to artists and, you know, 60% goes to the record labels. Even without knowing that, just, just having the power of being a record label, you would think like they have some influence in what songs go on editorial playlists. It makes sense. Pooh can't resist the honeypot. I got two small kids. We read a lot of we we really lot we read a lot of Winnie the Pooh, so I know all about the honeypot. Deflect the blame, a la Ticketmaster. Okay, we're gonna talk about blame deflection. Here we go. In tech, a honeypot is an isolated server placed outside of a company's security firewall, so it is intentional intentionally vulnerable to hacking. It is set up to attract would-be hackers to deflect attention from their real operations and to expose the hackers for identification and prosecution. This is interesting, too, because if you have a garden, you may have done this, too, where you plant some delicious-smelling things on the outside of your garden so animals will eat those and not try to come in your garden and eat those. You can maybe even catch the animals. I mean, that's essentially what they're doing here. In the entertainment business, a honeypot is an is, is an external company that seems independent from but is actually controlled by the real power players. In the concert business, Ticketmaster is a perfect honeypot. It was set up by all the major players to act as an intermediary, a scapegoat, to take all the blame for the exorbitant fees, even though those fees are passed on to the promoters, the venues, and often the performers, the artists themselves. It's sort of a good cop, bad cop approach. Everyone can point the finger and get angry at Ticketmaster because that's exactly what it was designed to do to protect Live Nation, the promoters, and the artists themselves from blame for high ticket prices. If you haven't seen John Oliver's evisceration of Ticketmaster on last week's on, on last week tonight, John Oliver's great show, I highly recommend it. And actually, if I remember on YouTube, I will put the link Spotify is a honeypot for the music business. The major labels allow it to exist, knowing it will take all the blame for dwindling artist income and deflect the blame from the labels. Meanwhile, they laugh all the way to the bank. Yep. Yep. All right. Lobby, lobby, lobby. David Israelite and the NMPA. The next component of the operation was to shape public opinion, demonize Spotify, blame them for devaluing music and underpaying artists, and swear up and down that you will fight them and do everything you can to try to force Spotify to pay artists a higher percentage. Wink, wink. Enlist lobbyists. David Israelite has been one of the most public and vocal critics of Spotify and DSPs in general, vowing to do everything within the law to fight the use to fight the usurious practices of the streamers. He is the CEO of the NMPA, the National Music Publishers Association, a trade group that represents and lobbies on behalf of thousands of music publishers. Their mission statement says they exist to protect, promote, and advance the interests of music's creators. In truth, the NMPA works for the publishers, not the creators. And what's worse is that the big three major labels each with their own billion-dollar publishing companies, represent about 70% of this entire customer base. So, he basically works for the major labels, advancing their narrative, yet appearing as an objective third party. A champion, even. The majors effectively pay his salary, and he does a great job pushing their agenda. You will never hear him say anything critical about major labels. I feel like I need to read that again, because that, that's, that's really interesting to me. Uh, enlist lobbyists. 
David Israelite has been one of the most public and vocal critics of Spotify and DSPs in general, vowing to do everything within the law to fight the serious practices of the streamers. He is the CEO of the NMPA, the National Music Publishers Association, a trade group that represents and lobbies on behalf of thousands of music publishers. Their mission statement says they exist to protect, promote, and advance the interest of music's creators. In truth, the NMPA works for the publishers, not the creators, and what's worse is that the big three major labels, each with their own billion-dollar publishing companies, represent about 70% of his entire customer base. So he basically works for the major labels, advancing their narrative yet appearing as an objective third party. That's like, that's wild. That's wild. And knowing now that like BMI was just purchased by New Mountain Capital and has become a for-profit entity, another video I made on everything you need to know about BMI being purchased and going for-profit is there for you to check out. Uh, You know, it's like, it's it's pretty heavy. It's pretty heavy. And there's a really good, (laughs) there's a really good meme here uh, that, that uh, I'll have to share on our socials. When this brainwashing first started happening, I made a meme to sum it up. And so he's got a meme here. And uh, this meme is an old meme. I, I believe it is Rupert Murdoch in the cartoon. So it was lifted from an Australian newspaper commenting on his uh, same approach to white and blue collar workers. Um, and the meme is basically like you have... Uh, careful mate that steamer wants your cookie that streamer wants your cookie the streaming services right um and it's saying like streaming services gets about 25 percent of the profits and the artists who has like a little you know has like a yellow construction and a construction hat on that that's the artist they get about 15 percent of the profits and then the major labels get about 60 percent of the profits and you can see the major labels looking have they got a full plate of cookies in front of them and they're looking over at the artists and they're saying hey artists that record that 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 streaming service over there Spotify they're trying to take all your profits while they sit there with a full plate of cookies and and the artist has one cookie uh pretty poignant uh so so he says this approach was also used in the southern strategy where William F Buckley was able to use fear-mongering to get uneducated southern white folks to vote against their own interests and blame migrants and minorities and defend the wealthy white that were the actual robber barons. You may recognize Rupert Murdoch, yada, yada. Um, yeah, I think that's a that's a pretty common trope is like, uh, or a pretty common now uh, assessment of the way the world works is that we tend to blame people below us for, <laughs> below us in the economic sense um, for the troubles of, for our own economic troubles, our own economic struggles, when in reality it's the people with lots more money that are running the whole show and just telling us to blame each other. Okay, nobody wants to bite the hand that feeds them. Herein lies the problem. What makes this so easy for the major labels is that there are many forces at work in their favor. For artists, the major labels represent everything they have ever wanted. A successful career, millions of fans, tour support, etc. To admit the labels are the bad guys here would require accepting a lot of cognitive dissonance. Like a codependent relationship with an abusive partner, they hurt you but you still want to be with them. Nobody wants to bite the hand that they believe also holds the key to their success. Another force at work is humans natural reaction to new technology fear ever since metropolis and jules verne 
new technology is always viewed as either a savior from the future or a sign of an impending dystopian future of dehumanization and irrelevance. Luddites burn down looms, robots on the assembly line, cassette tapes, and recordable CDs destroyed the music business, and now AI. Every generation has their own version of some boogeyman coming to take their jobs and future away, and every generation claims that, no, this time's different. To paint Eck and Spotify as heartless, greedy tech hairbingers harbingers fits right into this narrative which is exactly what the major labels want you to think follow the money we're getting close here a couple more sections follow the money DSPs are not profitable DSPs are companies like Spotify they are not profitable record label major profit or or major label record profit Spotify has almost never shown a profit. I remember reading this, so just as an aside, I remember reading that Spotify doesn't make a profit, and I thought, oh, they're just putting all their money towards the top. They're they're giving all their money to the CEO. If they just paid Daniel Ek less, the company would make a profit, and then they could pay artists more. I was misguided when I thought that. Spotify has almost never shown a profit. That's exactly how the major labels want it. They take all the profit. All three major labels have reported record profits ever since streaming became the dominant vehicle of music listening. Memes saying Spotify earned billions are mistaking gross income for net profit. Memes that say that Daniel Ek is worth billions are looking at his stock holdings, not his personal income. As CEO, he draws a salary of about $360,000 a year, which is actually very low for a tech company valued at $30 billion. I'm not going to paint Daniel Ek as a saint in any way, and reading this, I don't want to mistake it. Daniel Ek also invests in a whole bunch of shady like military complex you know, weapons companies and stuff like that. By all, by all, uh, by all accounts, he's a douche. All right, but he's not making an exorbitant amount of money as the CEO for his CEO salary, comparatively speaking. This fact is also why Spotify has tried so hard to uh, find income streams that aren't controlled and throttled by the major labels. Their $100 million investment in Joe Rogan. Now, for those of you that are Joe Rogan fans or that who pay attention to what's going on with Joe Rogan, uh, Spotify paid Joe Rogan $100 million to put his podcast on Spotify. Where they didn't have to give 60% of their profits to major labels, this was a huge gamble towards independence from the major labels, although it hasn't panned out. Their most recent decision to include audiobooks in their catalog is another attempt to get out from under the majors. Their new payment scheme, quote-unquote, is another desperate attempt, and today's decision to lay off almost 20% of its workforce is another attempt to become profitable. Stockholders are anti-worker. Okay? Stockholders are anti-worker. This means the stockholders just want to see profit, and if that means you got to lay everybody off, then that's what it means. I talked about this in the BMI episode with New Mountain Capital uh, purchasing BMI, they're going to definitely lay a bunch of people off. That's going to happen because they got to see profits grow. You look at your line items when you're a business owner, you look at your line items, you go, these are my expenses, let's cut them off. How can I get rid of those expenses, right? Stockholders are anti-worker. There's a lot in here. There's a lot in here. I feel like you guys might have to listen to this episode twice. 
There's a lot in here. Their $100 million investment in Joe Rogan, where they didn't have to give 60% of their profits to major labels, was a huge gamble towards independence from the major labels, and it hasn't panned out. All right, that's that's a big takeaway from their their move. They're like really trying to get out from under the labels. Uh, their most recent decision to include audiobooks. It's like they're they're working. They're like trying to get rid of. They're trying to get out from under the labels and make some of their own money. And uh, their new payment model is one that we talked about in an episode called Spotify's new payment. Uh, what is it called? Spotify's new payment plan for 2024 or something like that. Spotify's new payment model for 2024. You can uh, break down everything they're trying to do to pay out differently than they did before, which essentially just means they're people who are smaller artists aren't going to make anything. Uh, but there's lots to it. So check that episode out too. Don't believe the major label push agenda that Spotify is greedy. They are only kept alive on substance strip like heroin addicts on methadone, just enough to not get sick. Labels are like the evil herdsmen that keep the golden goose within an inch of his life, pumping out golden eggs with an insatiable appetite for golden omelets. Last section, here we go. What about the other streamers? Apple, Amazon, Tidal, Deezer? As far as I can tell, due to the profit uh, profit taking by the major labels, which all streamers have to accept, there is no viable business model. Period. There's no viable business model for streaming because of the major labels. Because the major labels are just sucking everybody dry. You want to start a major? You want to start a, a a streaming company? Cool. We'll uh, we'll give you our artists as long as we can take everything you make. <coughs> Apple pays on average twice the royalties to artists than the others, but they have a couple advantages. They already have the infrastructure to support worldwide music streaming, and they can afford to lose money on it, which is what some analysts suggest they do. It's not their sole business model or even their primary business model. Apple sells the iPhone and computers, laptops, iPads. They're totally fine. They can lose money on streaming. No big deal. Amazon also has the infrastructure they need. Music is just a tiny side gig to them. It doesn't need to turn a profit. Plus, they wouldn't pass up the opportunity to scrape new data from customer base to sell to their advertisers. And so that's the big thing with Amazon. They're viewing it as they're viewing it as data collection cool, we're going to invest this money. It's an investment in learning more about their customers so that they can advertise to them and sell more things. Business world's a little bleak, isn't it? Title is owned by Block, which is Jack Dorsey of Twitter and Square uh, Payment Processing. Uh, Jack Dorsey obviously sold Twitter to Elon Musk. They also do not need to turn a profit. It's possible that Jack Dorsey sold Twitter before Elon came in. I could be wrong. I think that's true. Jay-Z was an original owner of Tidal, and I remember hearing all about, oh, Jay-Z's got this, and they're going to pay people more money. He quickly got out when he saw how untenable the business model is. He was in at first, and then he went, you know what, we're not going to make any money with this. And Jay-Z, we all know, is an amazing businessman. Deezer is owned by a multinational conglomerate, Access Industries, who made its fortune in none other than Russian oil and petrochemicals, and now owns Warner Music Group and a hundred other companies. They don't have to make a profit either, and now they are partnered up with Universal as a test bed for their quote-unquote artist-centric payment model, a.k.a. paying less to underperformers and non-music tracks in order to pay more to their top sellers. Okay, so this is 
uh, essentially what I was referencing when we talked about Spotify's new payment model for 2024 is they're, they're paying less money slash no money to the underperformers. And then they're, they're taking that money and they're paying it to the people who are doing the majority of the streams on the platform. Deezer. Did you hear that? Deezer is owned by a multinational conglomerate access industries who made a fortune in none other than Russian oil and petrochemicals. That's gotta be some shady shit right there. It's wild, it's like all this money, where this money comes from, how these companies get made. You know, we're we're, we're done with this part of the podcast. I I uh, I I said this on an episode recently. There's a way. There's a way to fix this. It's going to take time, and it's going to take it's going to take investment in independent artists, and it's going to take you know, more independent artists that get, that get famous or, or, uh, that build massive audiences to continue to stay independent. That's what it'll take. And and if, and if those people continue to stay independent, then a streaming platform can be built that, that caters only to independent artists and that it has a user centric payment model. And when I think of a user centric, I mean, he's talking about user centric, user centric payment model here to, to mean, um, to mean that they're paying underperformers less. But my understanding of what a user-centric payment model is is that whatever you stream as a user goes to the artist. And so that, you know, that seems like a no-brainer and I think a lot of artists feel that way that that's a no-brainer. Like, hey, look, this person streamed my song, I should get money directly from the person who streamed my song. That that makes complete and total sense in my mind as an artist. I understand why Spotify does what it does, obviously, with the stronghold of record labels taking 60% of their profits. But uh, it's not ideal. Not ideal for artists. So, hey, I'm not saying you can't hate Spotify. Keep hating Spotify. Have some fun with it. But remember, the original bad guys are still here. And they're still the original bad guys. They're still the bad guys. They're still the ones running the show, screwing over artists. It's been happening for a hundred years, and it's still going under the guise of of streaming. And Spotify is our little honeypot that we can all blame. We can all go screw Spotify. Spotify's evil. When in reality, it's it's not them. It's the record labels who still run the show. All right. So if you're an independent artist, which I think most of you are, and you hit the big time. Give the middle finger to the to the record labels. Do it yourself. Hire a team. Build. So go look at like what Connor Price did or what Chance the Rapper did or what Boney Vare did. It's like these guys invested back in themselves. What Taylor Swift has been doing too. I mean, like re-recording a bunch of her own music so she can own her own masters, asking her fans to stream the stuff that she owns and not the stuff that the record label owns. I mean, it's wild. Um... Uh, but chance, you know, it's like a lot of these people get out of music. Chance the rapper, it's, it's like they they make more money selling hats with a three on them than they do with streaming. So if there were a model to cater to those people, to the Connor Prices, and to the Chance the Rappers, and to the Boney Vares, and to the you know Taylor Swifts, if they're if we're able to get to them before the major labels do, you know, a, a payment model where they made a penny per play instead of point zero zero three cents per play. Users can stay. Users can pay the same amount of money they've been paying. Uh, 
10 bucks a month ish get a thousand songs a month in my mind like that's that's the that's the problem that needs solving in the industry right now and that's the model to solve it i've got a much more in-depth idea of of how to make the user experience really fun and a lot more like what people want to use because i think if you're thinking about artists only then you're you're not going to build a platform that people want to use you have to think about how consumers want to consume music and you have to create that but it's a huge problem that needs solving and uh, hey look if you're a coder and you want to solve that problem reach out to me because i have the i have a, a five-page manifesto on how to do it let's fucking take over the world i'm sorry for saying the f word thank you for listening to my podcast everyone this is how musicians make it i'm feeling spicy today heading down to new orleans tomorrow i'm feeling good i'm feeling good it's the first day of 2024 it's the first day of 2024. I should have I done a clickbaity title like five things to do in 2024 as an artist. Maybe I'll do that next. I will say that the trajectory of my, of my life, of my existence in music has changed significantly in the last five years. And it has taken me some time to wrap my head around it especially from an ego standpoint because I live in the Northwoods now and I run a university jazz program and I still go out and tour and I play a lot and I play with my own bands. I book tours and I record a lot of music and I've been working on a record, a new record for two years. It's been an insane amount of work and I've been releasing singles with friends and seeing a lot of success, been seeing a lot of success. Lotus just like Lotus trumpets just posted a bunch of videos of me and all these trumpet players from all over the world are like, Hey, who's this guy? I really like his playing. Wow. This is amazing. And it's like, Oh, look at that. <laughs> I spent, <laughs> there's a lesson in here too. I spent 15 years trying to get people to listen to my music all on my own. And all it took was Lotus trumpets to post one video on social media for like hundreds and hundreds of trumpet players to, to find me and start following me. It's like, damn, I should have been partnering with somebody sooner. Thank you, Lotus. I appreciate you. But I want to say, like, I'm really proud of, of what I built. You know, it's like we've got an app company called Gig Boss now that's an organizational tool for freelance musicians, it's like DIY self management for artists, for, for freelancers, for, for band leaders. It's really cool. It's working. People are subscribing to it. People are paying us to use it. I mean, that's crazy. We were in a place where, like, we had users, but we had no idea how to charge them a year ago. And like I figured out this whole way of like building a new section of the app and I raised the money and we and we got it built and we're making iterations and I found two new developers. And so like that whole thing, I'm really proud of the work that's gone into that and we're going to continue to make it awesome. And my program at Michigan Tech has grown and one of my ensembles I started four or five years ago has become one of the beloved ensembles among students at the, at the school and we're, that's the band that's going down to New Orleans this week. And the students are just learning so much. They're learning everything by ear, which is something I'm, I'm really passionate about is like get away from sheet music. For somewhere down along the line, we decided that like sheet music is the best way to learn music and it's just not. It's just not. It's just like scientifically not the best way to learn a language. You know, it's like we don't like – I just raised two boys. You know, they're, they're, they're six and eight now. And I watched them learn how to talk and learn how to speak. And, man – it's amazing how they learned language so quickly. And it's really because we did a lot of call and response. We did a lot of like, say this word, say it back. It was all that. It wasn't like I put a book in front of them and said, read this word on this page. 
we're doing that now because they got to learn how to read and write. But I didn't do that when they started. Why would we do that with music? It doesn't make any sense. So I've been teaching my students a ton by ear. This band learns everything by ear. And it's just raised the morale of my program. My students it has raised the level of the player that comes through the program, the, le- the, 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 the proficiency with which they can improvise has been raised significantly. They all go and they play in my top jazz band and they do really well. I've been taking care of my body. I've been taking care of my mind. I've been taking care of my family. We started an Airbnb and the Airbnb has been crushing it. And so that's another, I want to talk about like how the Airbnb has kind of changed our financial game. Cause I kind of wish we had done it a long time ago when we lived in Minneapolis it would have been sweet to have an Airbnb there. But I'm living and I'm learning. I'm living and I'm learning and I'm trying to pass all that I'm learning on to you so that you don't have to learn the same tough lessons that I've learned the hard way. But, yeah, I just want to say, like, damn, I'm like, I'm, like, grateful for the year. I'm grateful that a whole bunch of people have found this podcast and are listening to it. And I'm excited for another year. I'm excited for another year. This is my six-pack year, you guys. This is it. I got to stop eating chocolate. I've been in the gym six days a week for two years. Been doing it hard. I feel strong, stronger than I've ever been. For you, like, real nerdy, real nerdy weightlifters out there, I just bench pressed 235 five times by myself with no spotter. It's pretty stinking fun to feel strong. But I got to, I got to, I got to figure out how to eat better. That's, maybe that's my resolution for 2024. I'm still making music. I'm going to keep this podcast rolling. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend to check out these episodes. This is all stuff I wish I had learned when I was graduating college and entering my career as a professional musician. I wish I hadn't been taught this stuff, and I wasn't. So here we are. I'm giving it to you for free. So hey, if you're a gigging musician, go download Gig Boss. Go download Gig Boss and start using it to organize your career. You're going to thank me when you go to buy a house and you go to buy a car and you can just go to your books page and you can go, bam, this is how much money I make each month. That's going to be like game changer. You don't have to go through your Google calendar and guess on what you made for things. You're like, here, bank, when I'm buying this car, here's how much I make. That was the hardest thing for me when I went to buy a house, went to buy a car. How do we know what kind of income you have? Your taxes show that you don't really make any money because we've been savvy about writing things off anyways that's it tell a friend about the show I love you guys I'll see you next week peace